Welcome to the Cinematologist Podcast. I'm Dario Linares, as usual, um, and I'm here with one of our returning champions, Savina Petkova. Yes, Hello, Savina. Savina here. Hi, Dario. For the second time. Yes, it's our second take. <laughs> so we were, we were just debating whether we were going to let you know that we've done this intro. So this is the intro to our two LFF episodes that will be coming up. But we've done this intro once already, but had a technical failure. In fact, I'm going to check. Right, I'm looking at my thing. Say something. I am saying yeah. something. Okay, right, okay. We, we should We're be just recording. Double, so double checking, being work. super careful. I can't tell you how much good tape was lost yesterday, but we're going to do it again. Yeah, um, we've done, as, as people know, we've done this last year. We've done Berlin in the past. Neil's done Cannes. So it's great to be back at one of the big festivals, but not it, one of the premier ones in, in Europe. I don't know. What do you think about that, Sabino? No, yeah, there's not, there's not that many premieres happening. And obviously the awards here only go to uh, first-time filmmakers, these kind of um, new opportunities that are given on this kind of festival. Yeah. But at the same time, we have almost 200 titles this year, which is a lot. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's funny with... You know, you've got the big three in tennis, <laughs> Djokovic, Federer and Nadal. It's kind of like that with European festivals. It There's is. Cannes, yeah. Berlin and Venice. And London is the Andy Murray of, uh, of festivals. It's not quite at that, at that <laughs> level. But, um, you know, we're going to do, do this in a fairly unedited way. So Savina has very kindly agreed to be co-host and producer. So she's going to send us some, um, you know, a little monologue uh, goodies thoughts and reviews but also some big interviews so that's great to have her on board for that but also you know we're going to catch up and talk about various things that we've seen together as well and put it all together and, and we'll see what comes out at the end but I mean I, I wanted to start off by, by asking you about you know doing the London Film Festival because I always find when I go to Berlin it's always nice to be you know kind of outside of your normal routine and just bombing around the different cinemas and in london i never really i feel like i never really get into that film festival mode it's back to work and it's going home and stuff i don't know did you feel the same it's quite an interesting time of the year because you have the festival life converging with your normal life and they overlap geographically and uh, chronologically as well. And that makes it quite disorienting for people who have busy lives, of course, and also do film writing or film reviewing or podcasting on, of film on the side. So um, I think on the one way it takes something away from the experience because it's not as exclusive. It doesn't feel like you're giving the full attention it deserves. But at the same time, it there can be a little bit of more adrenaline here and there because it's not every every day that you can just rock up to the Audio Leicester Square at 8 in the morning on a sun Saturday or a Sunday before anyone is there and just watch a film yeah. in a huge auditorium, a film that not many people have seen yet. So it's pretty cool yeah absolutely you know there's there's no there's no real grounds for any complaints about being able to go to a film festival as and yet as we always yeah, complain we but to be fair <laughs> the um, the organization does seem better this year just in terms of the press and industry screenings and the fact for that sure. we don't have to sit around on our asses for 45 minutes in, you know getting cold and, and what have you they've, they've introduced this token system which yeah, seems a lot better not an old fashioned queue anymore which would have you rounding up Soho 
the the Prince Charles cinema three times before you can get into the screening, which is a very, very good development, I think, this year. Everything seems well taken care of, and uh, there's a lot of volunteers helping out, and they've also um, opened up the festival to newer venues as well as keeping the big one from last year the South Bank Center yeah. for the big screenings and gala premieres so sure. I like that that setup to be fair yeah it's, it's really huge isn't it London um, because it's over previous weeks as well before the actual festival starts. it's a four week festival yeah, for the crazy. press and industry did you get to see much in the pre warm up bit in the press and industry pre uh, screenings that's the thing I've always tried and go to more mm. and the uh, the weeks before it actually gets hectic but this year not really i came to see only a couple of films that was that was my take unfortunately what about you yeah i haven't seen anything live but um, there's a few things i've seen on the uh, on the digital platform but i'm going to save that for later because i kind of want to round up what was what i've seen digitally in home and, and sort of talk about the differences of seeing something at, at home rather than going to the the cinema because and again we've we've just come out of um odium leicester square seeing Inaritu's movie but where i'm I, we need to let that percolate that is just a monster that i need to wrestle with a little bit i don't know or, yeah. or is or is it a little kitten pretending to be a lion yeah, and yeah, roar yeah. at you? We don't know yet. Yeah, it's, there's a lot going on with that movie, but I need a, a bit of time. But yeah, I do want to talk about the, the two movies that we discussed yesterday because it was the first two um, that I'd seen, you know, on purpose that I'd, I'd read about and I was like, yeah, I want to see uh, these movies. But the, the first one, maybe we could talk about the film that we saw together in the afternoon, Blue Jean. Yes, let's talk about Blue Jean, okay. this gorgeous addition to the new British canon. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is a, a movie that was set in the uh, 1980s. It's um, a first feature from Georgia Oakley and stars Rosie McEwen, who, to me, had an unerring kind of similarity to Nicole Kidman from various <laughs> angles. I couldn't get over it. Just, she looks exactly... Well, Nicole Kidman from a few years ago, let's say. Yeah, probably. <laughs> about 15 20 years ago yeah. i would say and the, the the thing that really struck me about this and i mean we had a little we've had a we had a long discussion yesterday how i i really liked it and you were less sold on it but i think we both agreed that the, the kind of the production design the setting in the 80s the authenticity of that in thatcher's 80s um with this lesbian character who's essentially a teacher but is it's not closeted but is is in her day-to-day -day life is kind of passing or not letting anybody know because there is this um, the conservative government under Thatcher is trying to put forward this law which bans um, the promotion of homosexuality in schools so she feels kind of compromised by this and is unable to, to to kind of reveal what her identity is in the school obviously but then she's got a friendship group outside um, and you know she goes to this collective and got a girlfriend um, and I found it really believable that world was just really well uh, represented and articulated. I found the, the central character really strong. Um, but we were discussing, weren't we? I'm sorry to keep going back in the past tense. We were discussing how that sense of her experience and her life, maybe you, you, you read that slightly differently. I think while watching it, maybe I had a slight problem with... Maybe a feature of the writing? I'm not sure. It feels like there was more potential that, that was left unexplored. 
in some way that was my immediate response while watching the film yeah but just talking about it and thinking about it afterwards i kept um returning to some visuals that sometimes worked sometimes they didn't there were some there were the film was all drenched in harsh but also alluring realism as you mentioned of, of the 80s and it had this green bluish very cold hued palette yep. which changed exactly at the very very last scene right. when the sun was finally allowed to come in and illuminated everything yeah, yeah. to a to a brighter blue and white and i really like this transition but it came so late in in the film um but yeah the, the thing that i found interesting and also maybe struggled a little bit with was this adherence to realism plus layered on that the point of view and narration which was never revealed as a first person narration in any case and we didn't have lots of psychological cues about the inner life of the protagonist we could just deduce them from her doings and her behavior here and there but there was a strong sense of subjectivity mm. which was captured very well in the um, in the ambiance of the film and the aura of this homophobic times sure that made me think that oh this is the world that protagonist sees it the way that protagonist sees it it's not the objective world of the 80s but it's a very personal rec personal account of the 80s of this lesbian woman who is struggling to um to navigate the whole, her own tensions of belonging, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I think it wouldn't surprise me if this was shot in 16 millimeter and then blown up because it was very grainy. Yeah, and absolutely. Got, and it, it did have that feeling just in, as you say, the washed out color palette of a kind of stilted 80s environment. And what's what's interesting is it did, it did use some of the kind of musical cues. You know, there were sort of queer anthems, let's say, in some of these, uh, in, in some of these sort of party sequences where she's with her her other her gay friends and but it wasn't it wasn't sort of overtly labored that i didn't think what was really interesting to me was the depiction of the school and the school gym and uh, you know these sort of wooden floors that i remember back in the day because i grew up in the 1980s it was I, I just found it completely authentic and the 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 clothes the cars all of the production design was just really kind of drew me in and I felt that her subjectivity, because I think that the, a lot of the film, as you say, aesthetically, it was using certain cues and certain devices to show that she was like in a goldfish bowl. Let's, I mean, there's one, one, one scene with an actual goldfish bowl. She's got this lovely cat. A white, gorgeous, you know, gorgeous, fluffy white cat. cat. And it's trying to get in the goldfish and the, uh, in the goldfish bowl and the goldfish is kind of swimming around. And, you know, it's clearly symbolic of her being in this in this situation where all of the people around her uh, are commenting on what we hear on like radio and TV reports in the background about this law about homosexuality being prohibited in schools and then we get you know like muffled the, the sort of muffled sound which signifies the idea that the, the lead character is kind of submerged in, in these thoughts and I, I, I really felt that, that that worked for me apart from the moments where they went into these dream sequences that I thought was ill-advised. When it kept in the kind of realist mode, but it was all her experiences, I thought yeah. that was fine. It's a really interesting layer, I think, of reality and subjectivity, which is rarely made to look so seamless. Yeah. 
that's that's why maybe I was a bit confused while watching it because I was yearning for more subjectivity and I was looking at the body and her body because especially in 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 queer themed films I'm more inclined to um, to have a ready depicted struggle that takes place on the the character's body in some way um, but since the film steered away from that on purpose I was a bit taken aback but I think this says more about my own prejudice in watching these kinds of films unfortunately so that's why I kept thinking about it yeah. after um, we finished uh, the viewing yeah I mean I think that the the, the the thing is is interesting in the years since the Thatcher era you know I'm not going to say that <laughs> things are, are, are how things are for gay people let's put it that way being somebody who's straight but you know you would say you would say looking back from 2022 that things have gotten a lot better however I think that that sense of experiences being dictated to you by outside culture is still very real you know that's not that's something that that hasn't gone away it's just happens in different ways perhaps you know people still struggle to be out to their family I mean there's these scenes where she's discussing with her sister and who you know, has the most yeah. the scariest family ever yeah, yeah, that right. was the cringiest moment for me watching this film because it sent me into such a spiral um it's just the nightmare of the british upper middle class yeah, i it think is. it's so scary to watch with this man and a woman and their child who is so spoiled yes and their tightly uh, arranged home which looks so lifeless and it's just it was not even a caricature it seemed like that would be quite desirable for so many people but because yeah, no. it was juxtaposed with the main protagonist so it felt like it's a trap that the main protagonist doesn't want to see herself in anyway yeah. and very conveniently at that point we learn by a throwaway comment that she was married yeah. to a man before um, in her life and thankfully this is not discussed more in any more detail her previous life because to her it doesn't matter anymore so in that sense I also see the subjective point of view here coming at play because for the viewer it might be interesting for the straight viewer I guess lots of straight viewers would think oh why and ask these kind of questions that maybe um, it's not your place to ask anyway so I'm happy that the film didn't go to the obvious places at all. And I suppose we should say that the, the whole kind of moral dilemma of the film is, uh, is sort of provoked by the arrival of a, a student. And there is this sort of sense of, well, for me anyway, it was kind of like, oh, I hope this film doesn't fall down a cliche that looks like it's going to happen. Thankfully, it didn't. But it does present a, a different and interesting sort of twist on the, on the idea of... of the main character n making a moral decision or not yeah. and actually you know the sense of being having to be kind of selfish in order to pres preserve your own status in main you know in mainstream or straight culture and and the decisions that that, that gay people have had to make mm -hmm. in terms of their friends or people that they they meet in order to secure that that position and i think that's the that's the kind of crux of the film. I mean, I wouldn't say it, it resolves it, but I don't think it actually, it, it, it didn't need to, or it didn't even you know, try to really resolve it in a, in a sense. Although I would say, and I think we, we agreed on this, that it ended a scene too, too late. There was a, a previous scene that it should have just cut to black and that would have been a great ambiguous ending. We really, really loved the party sequence at the, um, the last 10 minutes in the film, which 
works so well because it doesn't say a lot. It's not a very wordy, verbose sequence. It just lets the characters speak with their looks and their gazes and their tears in their eyes and just keeps the expression tethered to this unspoken understanding that we just carry on. We fuck up, we do stuff, then we just go on. And I found that really invigorating and refreshing. I really, Nobody's really like that. Nobody's 100% morally pure. Everybody no. makes compromises all the time. That's the thing. It's a film about responsibility in many ways. Um, responsibility to yourself, to your peers, to the people that come after you, to your students. Being an example or not setting an example or choosing not to set an example. And these are quite important nuanced questions that the film does handle with care. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, th- I think it definitely does. And, and, you know, I saw it got a couple of three-star reviews, but, and I think, you know, it's not, don't get me wrong, I think it's got a little bit of the first feature about it. For sure, but yeah. But it's, it's, worth, it's worth checking out, I think. It's, it's uh, I, and again, it's BBC funded, isn't it? So it has something of that ilk about it. And, you know, somebody's trying to make a film that, that is a, a first movie, but also says something. And I think it manages it manages that. And Definitely, but it makes me more excited to see what she comes up with next. I'm absolutely in waiting. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So let's let's talk about another film then that we've... I saw this on, um, on the digital platform and you've seen this previously. Yes, and I remember telling you to see something that yeah. is on the digital platform that I think you would like. Yeah, yeah. And it so happens that you already saw already, it. It was the first one so I watched. So That was, was a pretty good choice, yes, I think. <laughs> indeed, very uh, serendipitous, I think. So this is the film called Unrest by Cyril Schaublin. Cyril Schaublin, please. Schaublin. Okay, I, I, I always get my pronunciations wrong, so I apologize to Cyril. But I think to say, first of all, you've got a piece coming out in Film Comment about this, and you've interviewed the director, right? Yes, I had the huge pleasure to interview him, and we talked for a long time about so many things, because this film does provoke so many thoughts. That's why I sought him out in the first place. I just felt like I really need to talk to him about his film, <laughs> and thankfully he agreed, and that was lovely. Um and the film, the film itself stuck with me for so long. I, I saw it in July, kept thinking about it months and months and months. And even um, the, I knew that its glory in one way, its aura preceded my viewing of it as well. Because it did win a, an award in Berlin upon its premiere, the sure. really, really cool encounter section. So it seems like it's a vital voice of contemporary cinema. It's, it's a Swiss filmmaker and it's his second film, which is quite different in content but very similar in visual style to his first film um, which is called Those Who Are Fine it's relatively shorter, it's about 70 minutes long Um, and it's set in the present where this one is set in the past yeah, that's right, so this is about, the film's about a Russian um, polymath anarchist called Pyotr Kropotkin and this is a real historical figure who was a scientist, a uh, geologist, but ended up being, you know, a, a, a quite philosopher, a philosopher as well. an out- outspoken anarchist, really, and critic of the, I don't know what you call the advances of modernism and their effect on on people in terms of a social sense, but also the, the, the ways in which modernist working practices has an impact on, on individuals. The workers. Yeah, the, the workers' rights, but also their, their very lives. So he's, the, this guy... 
Kropotkin then goes to, he's taking the geological survey of this Swiss town called Saint-Emir. Um, but this town is absolutely structured, and I think it's the right word, around the, the watch factory at its centre. And we get these, we start by getting these very intense, precise close-ups of these workers who essentially, you know, what you would call quote-unquote as factory workers, but they're doing this absolutely technically difficult work in putting these the, these watches together, right? And then you start to discover slowly but surely that the whole of the factory and then indeed the whole of the town is defined by the, the mechanization of time and space and labor. And it's just amazing this film because like me describing it there you can't i can't really get across to you how much it sort of draws you in it sounds like this is a watch this is a film about watching people make watches in a swiss factory and and then a bit of anarchism you're kidding me but it's absolutely superb i find that it's very difficult to describe this it film is. without um giving away its charm in a way because i can say a lot about how i felt watching it how surprised i was to be drawn in um how taken aback I was by the wordiness of the dialogue there and the monologues as well, because they're also delivered in a more uh, automaton kind of way. That's right, yeah. And there's a lot of words and a lot of particular things that are very specific to either criticism of Marx and Engels, um, anarchist definitions, um, how the anarchist communities work around the world, who needs more money, the comrades in Boston who are having a strike and we're going to send them this amount of it's money. It's very internationalist yeah. in the politics and stuff. Yeah, and it's actually true. This is where the, um, this big big uh, anarchist community was formed as a, almost a center for the global anarchist community at a time pretty amazing uh, in this super small town tucked in the Euro Mountains right sure. but then that's that's kind of like counterpost or that becomes the the under the underlying sort of story when on the surface the the, the people who work in this factory then they are bound by this sort of um, shaping of temporal rules so the idea of time as being a constructed thing is something that the film you know really sort of focuses on and the ways in which the the lives of the people there are dictated to you know in such precise terms and they've got like these four variations yeah. of time which is so weird to get your head around this is yeah the, the film takes place in um, 1877 and that's well before the um, establishment of standardized standardized, yeah, time, standardized time right yeah. yep so that's why they have four types of time and they differ by a yeah. few minutes by a few seconds and they always have to recalibrate them again yeah. and again yeah and recalibrate all the clocks manually to make sure that none of them is falling behind yeah. and i found that also fascinating to watch because it's just so ridiculous there's, this, there's a great scene when the train time breaks down <laughs> and they have an argument about, about which time what they the will go what we so do like now the postal time or the church time yeah. it's 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 hilarious but what it does is it really it makes you sort of realize just how much the way that we you know in modernist terms we we sequ sequentialize our existence you know using seconds and hours and days and all of that is is something that is imposed on us it's not a natural thing yeah. you know it, and and that's so fascinating and then as you say the actors who are a lot of them are non-professional actors 
they deliver their lines in this very automaton kind of way and they're treated in the factory as just you know obviously you know puppets for this production line of these of these watches but everything and that that kind of um encroaches on their very being so yeah one of the uh, one of the workers is carted off to prison because they're late essentially and losing time losing lo money losing time yeah exactly and 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 hiding these things the, these things and not the way that the the rest of the the rest of her co-workers kind of treat her is like okay we'll see you after three weeks in prison you know you can carry on doing your work there and what i found really fascinating about uh, about it was it was a very on the outside a very sort of um exper experimental kind of concept but it's extremely watchable and extremely relevant so it just reminds me of of the way that we talk today about you know amazon workers having five minutes to go to the toilet and, and come back otherwise they lose they lose money and stuff like this and it, and it just yeah it's definitely saying something about today's society as much as it's saying something about you know back in the 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 late 19th century Yeah, I completely agree. And we talked with Cyril about this and he put it very um, in a very succinct way, saying that every film about the past is a film about the present. But I would also add to that, saying that lots of the, the films that are set in the past read as an allegory of the present, whereas this film, I don't think it uses the allegorical way of speaking at all. No. It's very submerged in, in its own context. It's very thoroughly researched and uh, reconstructed and strong structured to feel both old in a way and also super relevant yeah. so I think the film is very watchable also because of that because it manages to keep these two layers of past and present separate yeah. but also pr in close proximity to each other yeah no no absolutely and it reminded me reminded me of Ken Loach's period dramas just in terms of the, the, the style and the tone and the, the, the way how it focuses on the working practices as much as the people themselves and then you mentioned this the other day that, that photography is, is kind of like a key point as well about the arrival of photography and that, how that defines history but the way in which that is becomes mythologized is so fascinating as it's well. It's really great because photography is there um, as a new invention, but it's also an affordable invention, something that you can buy and make money out of. So it's already inscribed in this market economy. <laughs> so it's not the magical early days of photography anymore. Yeah. No, they, they are um, very tangible. So on the one hand, we have photographers taking pictures for, for advertisements for the watch factory right they want to sell more watches so we're gonna take photos of the mountains for the catalogs that we're gonna send to our clients and there's this beautifully funny sequences when someone walks into the shot <laughs> and they have to stop him and say oh no you have to go around um and, and the then, person says oh i'm gonna lose four minutes so. of my time to the factory <laughs> and then they're like okay no no you can go and then it's fine <laughs> so everything is just negotiated again and again um but the question about framing and who's being in the frame I think is also quite important and quite interesting way to look up at both the film and photography in the where do you focus your attention right in the film itself puts the um, human figures never in its center it's usually in the to top right corner or bottom left or And it's it's a very unusual way of framing that draws attention to how constructed everything is, right? And I think that also contributes to the fact that the film um, is being playful with the past in a way that doesn't disregard it in any way. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, just watching this, I thought, oh my god, Deleuzian film scholars are going to have a field day with this movie, <laughs> and it's that kind. But it's it's not. It's not pretentious, I don't think, and, it, no. and it's very watchable. No, I think it's so far off from pretentiousness that it makes me want to scream on the top of my lungs, everyone watch this movie. It's so exhilarating. And now it's in London. It's coming to New York Film Festival yeah. this It'd week too. to see if it gets a release in, in the UK. I know. really hope so. I really do. It's going to be quite, quite something. Great. Well, thank you so much for doing that for the second time, Savina. I really appreciate it. And uh, my yes, pleasure. Podcasting Era 101. Hopefully that won't happen again. This afternoon, I'm going to go see the Laura Poitras movie, but you're doing some writing, aren't you? Are you going to see something tomorrow? Yes, tomorrow I'm seeing Woman Talking. Oh, okay, great. I'm going to go see Ennis Men in the morning, Jenks' movie. Um, so, yeah, we'll catch up with you uh, very soon. I look forward to making a few, both of us making a few recordings from in and around uh, the festival. See you soon. Yes, thank you for having me. Dear friend, I have arrived in the Swiss Jura Mountains. The valley is... But no doubt the capital point of the international anarchist rotation circle. La nation c'est un fantôme. Une société anarchiste existe toujours. Puis en fait c'était la première fois que les femmes aient gagné le même salaire comme les hommes. Hey everyone, it's Dario here, as you can no doubt tell. Don't really know where to start with this uh, short monologue. Um, it's Wednesday evening, the 12th of October, and essentially. The festival is kind of drawing to a close now. The press and industry screenings have more or less finished. The program itself finishes and then there's awards and the gala ending on Sunday, which I'm lucky enough to have a ticket to, so I'll try and get something from there. But this approach of trying to record a load of little snapshots from the festival over a week or so, it's really fallen down the toilet, to be honest with you. I mean, this has been a, a result of three different things, really. One, I've had two or three recordings fall, fall through in terms of meeting up with people. Secondly, I've had two recordings which have technically gone wrong. Literally just this evening, I went to record something at the uh, Picture House's bar to try and get a little bit of atmosphere into the, uh, into the audio. But that went wrong, technically. Some kind of connection on my uh, from my computer to my microphone wasn't working. So I recorded that and that went wrong. So this is, again, a second attempt. And just the fact that, you know, I'm, I'm working full time at the same time. So I've just been trying to drop in and out of screenings and be around the festival, whether it's at the BFI or pitch houses or, or whatever. So it's kind of nobody's fault. It is what it is. It's uh, it's not particularly a problem. Um, I'm definitely hoping to get a couple of more interviews tomorrow. Savina has taped with Ruben Osland, which is great. I saw Triangle of Sadness just the other day and really enjoyed that so looking forward to listening to that and having a chat to Savina about it definitely hoping to speak to Christine Malloy and Joe Lawler tomorrow about the future tense it seems we always speak to them at the London Film Festival um, I think we'll catch them at the BFI tomorrow which is great and also still hoping to catch Jenks um, too and I've got a couple of other people that I'm hoping that hoping that I can talk to just about various films the one thing i did want to talk about just now because i don't know if i'd get a, another chance to speak about it is the film that is 
possibly the best film I've seen so far, with a few more to go, and that is All the Beauty and the Bloodshed, which is the documentary by Laura Poitras of Citizen Four fame. Now, this is possibly, if it's not the best thing I've seen at the festival, it's kind of the most complete, and what what does that actually mean? Well, it's a documentary that weaves together a focus on the life and radical photography of, uh, you know, a world-famous photographer called Nan Golden. And she kind of came to fame during the late 70s and early 80s for her radical approach to showing the gay subcultures of um, of New York. And, you know, she was very influenced by and within the wave of what you might call radical or post-punk, or even punk, sorry, um, artists of the late 70s and 80s that that existed during that that in that context so half of the film really is about an exploration of her work and her her not just a process really but what she's trying to do aesthetically and in terms of the way that her photography has a political underpinning and making people face the the realities of people's lives and you know this was related very much also to the the AIDS epidemic and the you know the impact it had on on um, her group of friends, particularly, but also the film focuses on Golden's political advocacy, particularly the activist campaign that she kind of forefronts against the Sackler family. Now, the Sackler the Sackler family are on the one hand multi generational philanthropists, really old money who donate millions and millions of dollars to, and not just dollars, who donate millions and millions of dollars and acquisitions to the most prestigious art galleries and museums around the world. So we're talking the Tate, we're talking MoMA and the Louvre, Victoria and Albert. And it's not just that they donate, you know, many of the new buildings and new wings that you will see pop up and new galleries in these um, prestigious organizations are named the the Sackler Gallery or the Sackler Wing. So on the one hand, they do that, but they make their money from pharmaceuticals and they own Purdue, which is the corporation that produces OxyContin. So obviously, this is one of the drugs that is responsible for the opioid epidemic. So Poitras does an amazing job of weaving together the history of this photographer's career and inserting within that in a way that has this satisfying and well-constructed sort of rhythm, I would say, the activist campaign that she is the driving force behind in terms of getting the, both the, the, the Sackler family to acknowledge the fact that their product causes this harm, but more directly to get the museums and the art galleries to stop taking the Sackler money. And, you know, it, it, it's really beautifully done in the sense that 
that it borrows from her photo stories that she uses. So it's not just the fact that she has photos up on the wall in art galleries, which de- definitely happens, but she's very famous for these photo series. So, you know, sometimes when you go in an art gallery, you'll see one picture after another. So it uses those, puts those up on screen, and then gives you the voiceover and the context behind it, the commentary on what these these photographs are kind of doing um, aesthetically and why they were important for photographic art you know in the history of art during this period but then that's woven in with her speaking with her activist campaign group and putting on these direct action campaigns in particular art galleries which are all really well you know it's all really sort of well documented and well shot really interestingly put together and you know politically it just kind of reiterates that lesson that the one percent corporate america the billionaire class whatever you want to call them they're totally able to morally compartmentalize regarding their actions in different fields. So on the one hand, they can, you know, develop philanthropic organizations and develop education programs around art and build new, great new sites for the display of art. But then on the other hand, they have absolutely no compunction about selling this drug and lobbying and making sure that the... The use of it is something that they want to promote in order that, that you know, the sales will be as maximized as they can, no matter what the consequences. They are ruthlessly protective of their own wealth and, and status. And it's really interesting in the final scenes, not to sort of give, don't want to give anything away. So close your ears if you want no spoilers at all. But the final scenes of the, the, the billionaires going through this kind of... Uh, zoom deposition it's, it's not really a deposition it's the they've lost the case and they've had to settle for i think it was five billion dollars or something like that um and and to see the sort of sackler children who are you know middle-aged old people now sort of not not really even squirming they just sat there impassive uh, as these victims of oxycontin or the families the victims families kind of tell give their testimonials about the stories and the hurt that they feel you know and still feel and because of the the impact of this drug and you know maybe i'm reading onto it but i didn't see any flickers of morality in fact you just seem to to give this sort of sense of being tired of feeling like they don't have to listen to this so yeah i think this is the most like impressive piece of filmmaking i mean in in the sense that it, it's not it's not experimental it's actually broken up into kind of chapters and you know it brings together this sort of exhibition style of the photograph and then you'd get talking heads and the very very clearly well used defined tropes and mechanisms of documentary but the way that portress puts it together you really can see that this is somebody who is completely in charge of her craft Okay, I'm going to leave it there. Um, Tomorrow morning, I'm going to try and go see the new Martin McDonough film. But um, I'm going to pass you over to uh, Savina now, who's going to talk a little bit about the new Joanna Hogg movie. Photography is like a flash of euphoria. And it gave me a voice. Once I started sharing the work, it was really heavy resistance especially from male artists and gallerists who said, this isn't photography. Nobody photographs their own life. Dance, dance, dance. The photographer Nan Golden, she's a major name in the art world. The work was incredibly political. 
It was about power, and particularly about the power that men have over women, and how that power is translated up in society. Here we are in the second week of the London Film Festival. It seems like everything's drawing to a close, but it isn't just yet. Not yet. And I must admit, I took my time before recording this particular uh, monologue because I just needed more time to sit with the film. The film which I saw one week ago exactly. It was Wednesday last week, I think. I just needed to sit with it, to let it simmer, to see what exactly is the best way to formulate my thoughts around it because I had a strong reaction to it when I watched it and uh, maybe it's now a good time to say which film I'm talking about. It's The Eternal Daughter by no other than um, uh, Joanna Hogg and with every Joanna Hogg film comes a lot of expectations now after the success of The Souvenir 1 and 2. And the press screening was absolutely packed. I think there was a lot of expectations already. I can feel them in the air. And it felt amazing to share this particularly personal piece of filmmaking as a minuscule gem of some sort with so many people all at once. And their own emotional responses were also palpable in the air one way or another. And of course, I was deep, deep into my own familial traumas and also familial joys, I think, watching this film. And it is about the mother-daughter relationship, which I'm very happy it gets so much representation on screen now. And Joanna Hogg is certainly one that can make these relationships materialize in, in front of you. And for the eternal daughter, it's quite important to first note that it's I joked with Dario about this a bit earlier on that if uh, 2022 gifted us a gothic horror movie, it was not blonde. It was the eternal daughter. And it might be a bit of a stretch to say it, but I stand behind it because it is very much a genre film by all means. Aesthetically, it borrows a lot from the iconography of ghost stories. We encounter again the protagonist from The Souvenir 1 and 2, Julie. And her mother, Rosalind, whom we've grown to know very well um, as her support system, although episodically, in both souvenir films. So this time around, Julie returns um, as an older woman um, in the, her middle age, now played by Tilda Swinton. And of course, this casting is a no-brainer for Joanna Hogg, who has been working with Tilda since forever and worked with Honor Swinton Byrne, Tilda's uh, own daughter, for the souvenir one and two. So obviously casting the mother of younger Julie as older Julie is uh, the easiest decision ever. But more peculiarly, um, John Hogg decides to cast Tilda again in the role of her own mother, Rosalind, so on the one hand, Tilda continues her journey as portraying Rosalind, but also returns as Julie as well. So this is already hinted in the very first shot in the opening scene, when it's a bit disorienting because you see a woman in the backseat of a car that is Tilda Swinton's character looking out. And then after the cut, you see the same woman, Tilda Swinton's character, but slightly younger, it seems talking to the driver so up close. 
It's a bit disorienting for anyone who hasn't read the plot and, and haven't seen the casting, though. But um, I think it's a very good way of um, giving us an example of what is going to come. So the opening gambit of the film is, is there already in the first sequence when the taxi driver um, very randomly recounts a story about the place that he's driving them to. It's a um, place that he says gives him bad vibes and is probably haunted because of an apparition that he saw in a photograph. <laughs> so this very typical start off and... Um, in a haunted horror film is turned into something a bit more sinister or at least we're led to think so the driver is taking them to a mansion hotel where they're supposed to be staying for Rosalind's birthday and um, also on this holiday Julie is supposed to write uh, she's supposed to finish her script however um, it's we soon find out that this hotel used to be a huge house or a holiday house or a mansion that belonged to Rosalind's family before. And Rosalind herself spent her early years and youth very much in between these walls. So it's a particular layering of memory, time and space that happens, which is not new for, for anyone who's seen the souvenir films. But here... With the role of genre, it's elevated and it's really exquisite to see because it has gothic style with um, everything from from the mist and the protracted time and the strange noises and the sound mix of this film is heightened to make sure we know what kind of film we're watching. But at the same time, we don't really because it's not the typical way that you would expect the haunted house to be portrayed. If you think about something of Kubrick's work, you would you would expect vastness, you would expect the maze-like feeling and a lot of corridors um, to be traversed again and again. The feeling of being lost and being trapped between these many walls and many doors. But here, our perception as a viewer is distorted in a different way because we see a lot more staircases um, and Julie going back, going up and down these staircases. So that kind of disproportion of what we would expect from an enormous house. And we don't even get the feeling that we're traversing in a labyrinth, even when um, Julie is taking walks or searching for her dog, the lovely, absolutely lovely Spaniel Louis. Louis makes an appearance and um, he's very loved. So we're only invited to wander around the house or the gardens only when Julie does it, obviously, because she's our protagonist. But we soon get the feeling that when she does, she does it out of anxiety. There's no curiosity in her. She's always tense. And this tenseness, the psychological tenseness that she feels has its own material and external form. It takes the form of the rattling of a window, of weird non-sequential sounds for which she complains very early on to the very unhelpful receptionist is a young girl who seems to be the only person around at all times and she seems quite impatient and we don't get to know why is she being so rude so the frustration grows and grows even on that um in that sense of manner as well because it doesn't seem like she's very well mannered Walking around this house reveals something painful, but we 
don't know why exactly. As the film progresses, we learn to to notice the little bits that activate memory. And it's what's curious here is that it's not Julie's memory, once again, in contrapunct to what happens in the souvenir part one and two, but it's a foreign memory, it's someone else's memory, it's her mother's memories, because Rosalind has spent time in that house. Very important things in her life have taken place in her house. But even if it's not revealed in detail, it's quite obvious that Julie is digging for these memories. She wants to know them. And it just got me thinking and asking myself, why is it so difficult to see your own mother cry and to watch her be upset? It's, I got the feeling that probably for Joanna Hogg as a filmmaker trying to make this film and for Julie as the outer ego of Joanna Hogg as a character in that film, this question was also very important and probably governed the way that their relationship to their own mothers span out. And I can imagine it's a universal feeling because there's almost something childish about the desire to keep your sibling or partner or family, whether it's your son and daughter or your mother or father, to keep them happy, to, to shield them in one way or another. And that might seem quite infantile on whichever occasion. It doesn't matter if you're the older or, or the younger or the recipient of, of that desire. There's also something quite harmful. And I'm not really sure what's harmful about it but it does build the atmosphere to be very tense and suspenseful. So I was really thrown into the abyss of trying to comprehend how this connection, the connection and the disconnection between mother and daughter is made so palpable and so physically affecting, especially when it's played by a single actor in both roles. So that casting of Tilda as both characters is not only smart, but it challenges the formal elements of the film and how they would work. So obviously, it's just a trick of the trade that you can't put them in a shot together, not for, for many instances at least. But that small decision necessitated by the casting then transforms their intimacy into something that is very difficult to acquire, so they don't have contact in the usual way as in, in framing. So by not being framed together, we have that feeling that they're distanced from one another anyway. So since they're rarely in a shot together, there is also that possibility of them to interact through conversation. And when that difficulty arises, as in the difficulty to have these conversations about the past, it almost begs the question, how can they connect? How can Julie really understand her mother? And how can her mother really communicate her own subjectivity? So in conclusion, I had a lot of thoughts <laughs> that were triggered by this film, for sure. And the experience of watching it is going to stay with me. Because of the mixing of 
genre aesthetics and how deeply that tension and that suspense sinks in into that exploration of a relationship that is already at arm's length but still feels unattainable in so many ways. At least that's what I was thinking exiting the cinema, that we can do it. That's the one way we can truly communicate is by attempting and by seeing the divisions between our closest and us. And maybe what I'm trying to say is that the film is hopeful as it is about forgetting, remembering and letting go. There is a certain sense of freedom that comes with knowing that your mom will probably forever be unattainable. And there are many Freudian ways to think through that. And psychoanalysis can say lots and has said lots about it. But seeing it play out in the film within the context of a ghost story, that was truly something that deserves to be seen. Also with people, I reckon, together. And I would have really loved to see that film with my mom. <laughs> That's what I'm going to want to say for, for closing remarks. Yeah, it's certainly sometimes easier to watch a film with your mom than have this conversation about unknowability and unattainability. So I'm here in the BFI Southbank bar with Christine Malloy and Joe Lawler. Thanks for coming on once again. Thank you very much for inviting us yeah, again. Thank you, Dario um, and Neil and the cinematologist. We're really happy to be speaking to you again. Yeah, it's great because uh, we, we seem to have an annual catch-up at the uh, London Film Festival, you know, with Rose Plays Julie last time, which we, we really loved. But The Future Tense is a very different film, of course. And I found it kind of expressly political, maybe even a kind of essay film, if, I'm, if I can call it that. Um, and you've just done your, your intro for the film that's screening, obviously, in the, here at the BFI. I just wanted to start off with how you feel about bringing a film that's a self-reflexive piece about Irish identity through the lens of Englishness and the journey between England and Ireland and how that defines life and artistic expression, you know. How do you feel about sort of bringing that film here today to England and screening it now, you know, after all this time? Well... I suppose when you're when we were editing this we started to kind of film write edit and it's it's a kind of a, a film that's very much made in the edit in an odd way so there's a kind of a, a sense that you don't know what you're doing until you've filmed it brought it back tried different kind of uh, voiceovers over the images and try different things and then think okay and then go back out again and keep and back and forth the process goes so you're kind of watching this unfold uh, try not to kind of be too tidy about it you know we're not trying to sweep it all into the center we just kind of let it sprawl out and it'll be self um, selecting as it goes along so there'll be as much more material that didn't make the cut than than would have and so it's kind of interesting to watch something unfold in this particular way i guess it's like the writing process where you're not really well some writers are clear what their ending is but some aren't and we certainly weren't and so we kind of allowed ourselves to give over to ourselves to the material and let it lead us 
Now, in the process of that, you're watching yourself divulge more and more and express more and more, and you think, okay, this is what's required, this is what it wants. But you're not really sure of what that actually is like until you've sat with an audience in front of a big screen, because you can kind of feel it's the impact of it isn't s such a big deal when you're watching a small version of yourself on a small monitor, which is what we edit on. So it really came home um, yesterday, and and when we were in Telluride as well. So uh, I can we're still trying to process, or I'm still trying to process what it really means to give that kind of material over, both from a personal level, but also within this British context text how people are reacting to it yeah and it would probably be very similar when we screen in the Dublin well when we screen in Ireland at some point in the future but yeah we did actually sit down and watch the film on its first screening at Talleyride so it's world premiere and Molly was with us so the three of us sat in a row and I was actually quite surprised at how it made me feel um I think it, it very much changed for me seeing it on the big screen. It, it felt more personal, more exposed, not exposing, because it isn't, I don't think it is exposing, it's storytelling after all, and, but in with a, a, a different attention to how we've approached the storytelling because it's a much freer f form for us to be working in. It's not like sitting down and writing a script for a narrative feature film. This is a territory that we know very, very well from years ago when we used to make live theatre work. And it, it feels like a comfortable space for us, but I think to have pushed it into quite a personal space in terms of the stories that we tell, particularly the story about Joe's mom, Helen, which is like a part two of her story because we began us in Further Beyond. But to, to go on that journey and then to see it on the big screen, I thought, oh my God, it's kind of weird on the big screen. We're too big. Like, can, you know what I mean? It was just yeah. on, not on, it was surprising how it made me feel. Yeah. And also to be with an audience. Um, because, you know, showing a film to an audience for the first time is always both a great thing, a kind of a relief, and then it's also a really traumatizing thing because, you know, you're just, your stomach is in knots and, how are people going to respond will they like it all those kind of nagging doubts that you have and you know the insecurities of making work and then sharing it with an audience and you really just wish you're going to share a really you know what you know is going to deliver everything that an audience want so this film the future tense yes it is it is quite personal and i would say that it's it's a it's an essay film and I would have thought that it's quite straightforward but I feel from reactions that maybe it isn't and maybe that's just the way we are and we just never get us and um, we like you know we like to go on a journey with something it's it's always damning with faint praise now you know I mean I know it's not we're not post lockdown but to say something is a lockdown film I mean how much of it you know, was dictated to by that and how much of this was kind of in place. I mean, in the movie you talk about, you know, that there was going to be actors, but in the end you're reading the monologues of your yourselves. So was that dictated to quite a lot? And did it, you know, did you, do you feel like it changed the, the, the movie? I, I think it is. A, it very much is a lockdown film. I don't think it would have uh, forged this identity unless 
the pandemic actually took place because it, it, it I, I guess once you let's say for example we were going to embark on a new process today anything that happens over the next year or two or three or four however long it takes to make the like further beyond was made in 10 months from beginning to end this took four years but anything that takes place in that time is fair game because I guess you as a person can only do and feel the way you're feeling at this particular moment in time in your life and I guess different kinds of feelings started to surface during COVID and of course one of the big things that the actors we had lined up couldn't come over so of course then we had to step into it that had a profound impact on everything and again I suppose looking back I'm thinking how you know I'm sure if we COVID hadn't have happened we would have probably looked at it and went it's wrong using these two actors we actually have to do it ourselves so because we're so uh, cheap that was uh, really a really convenient thing in the end we didn't have to pay the expense of getting actors over so in a way it, it, it grew out of that and it's it really galvanized the identity the sharper edges of the film uh, became much more uh, clear and evident because of COVID and that dictated the direction that it needs to have taken in a way uh, it, without sending too crass we had a good COVID uh, as a result of that it was like it was fortuitous it also bought us a bit more thinking time yeah. and, and just on the the performance of you two um, I mean it's one of the things that I really was really interesting to me in the movie it seemed like you know there was a very deliberate almost self-conscious performance of self in in the way that you positioned yourself on screen and the gesturing towards off screen which you know is probably talking to each other but even that maybe was slightly kind of contrived not in a bad way but you know what I mean it was like ah, I'm performing this this question to the other person and then even in the way that you read you know was it seemed very carefully uh, articulated that let's that, that say I mean was that a sort of deliberate thing? oh, oh god <laughs> um you know when we made further beyond we worked with two proper actors and actors are really good and skilled at their jobs and actually we wrote knowing that Alan Howley who was one of our voiceover artists would be able to deliver what we had in our minds really really well because he's a great performer and we've worked with him before in our live theatre work and um, you know in a way, Alan and Denise, Denise Goff, who is the other performer in Further Beyond, who's a brilliant actress, um, we're so lucky to be able to work with her. They just make the whole thing so effortless. They're very good at getting um, you know, a script, reading it, processing it quickly on the day, and then being able to come off page. So obviously they can't learn it all off by heart because it's too, that would be impossible but they have a familiarity and they're able to you know go lines ahead and you know say them off camera and then land where they need to in the script and for us it was a nightmare. It was awful. We did a version of it I think as Joe said in um, December 2020. We recorded the whole thing. It was so traumatizing. We waited an entire year before we even looked at us. We shot us and we refused to look at it. So, well, that didn't go very well. Can I say it's not a criticism? What I'm saying is that it fits in with, with your interest in 
um, almost kind of like the alienating effect of cinema and the construction of, of, of film. No, I, 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 I agree. I mean, I, you know, Christine may have found that more traumatizing than me. I'll just, I'll just point <laughs> that out. That is true. And uh, actually, last night when we were doing the screening, Denise was there in the audience. And we always like to have a little bit of a go with Denise. And I was saying, like, you know, the skill that it, the skill that it takes to kind of, um, you know, perform that. I said, but actually, all I needed was a couple of hours and was fine. There was no big deal at the end of the day, having a little go at her. But I kind of feel it's part of taking material, holding it up, so to speak, as a as an object, and studying it as if to say, this is not my my me. It's different to me. So these glasses are not mine. I'm I'm looking at these glasses. <clears throat> so I think it was partly an alienating effect, partly a distancing effect that we would have to kind of bring some distance between us, the material, so the audience. So the material was somewhere in between us and the audience, that we weren't so subjective and so emotionally engaged in the material that we found it difficult to speak or anything like that. And also being able to hold up, you know, personal, um, <clears throat> delicate material and handle it quite, you know, um, roughly as well because nothing nothing should be that carefully and delicately handled you can laugh at certain things and you can hold it up so I think it it's all part of the process of the performance and so it, no it, it was completely thought out and not not accidental at all and I mean you know this, this is obviously I mean, you've said it's a personal film but it's clearly it comes out of an, 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 an it seems to me it comes out of a, an, an anger of what's going on in the present, which is making you reflect on wider senses of Irishness, but also your own kind of understanding and maybe kind of ambivalence towards different aspects of of that. I mean, what, what, was it really true that sort of particular political aspects like Brexit and then the way that the COVID hit was? you know was really sort of starting to sharpen your desire to 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 want to make this film and make these statements about irishness and englishness and and, and then you know as a sort of follow up to that it must be really surreal sort of putting it out now when with the shit show that's going on it's even worse you know what i mean yeah yeah, yeah no um it i would be loath to say that it's a brexit film although it is a response to brexit it's our personal response to Brexit, which is our reflecting back over the years that we've lived in, in the UK. I mean, we moved here in the 80s, so we've been here a long time. We have a daughter here. She's grown up in this country. We cover all this in the documentary. Um, you know, she's grown up in London. I always say that to Molly, you are London Irish. You're not English. Because there's been times in her life when she's been confused. I said, but you've grown up in England, and I haven't grown up in England. And not only have you grown up in this country, but you love it here. I mean, she that's her. Um, she completely loves London. Her life is here. That's why the whole thing has been so traumatic. We were all traumatised by Brexit, actually. Um, and it, to me it feels like a self-inflicted wound and it's the damage, the repercussions of us are still, still being felt. It is far from done and over. And um, so it allowed us to think about, you know, it's the, the bigger picture of the relationship of England to Ireland because even though we've made our life here and I've lived most of my life in the UK, um, 
I've, it's not that I've had an uneasy relationship. You are an outsider. Um, London is the place in the UK where you feel you can feel most at home and create your own sense of home because it's such an am- amazing, diverse um, city, a, a holder of so many people and so many points of view. And you can you can be <laughs> yourself here. We've lived in England as well, parts of England. We've lived in Cambridge and Devon, and um, I never felt. Um, at home when we lived there in either of those two places because you then have to engage with what it means to live in England and it's not something that I've ever um, that, that ever really worked for me and at the same time although I always refer to Ireland as home we haven't lived there for a long long time and our daughter has never lived there and she's got a very particular you know relationship with the country that we call home and it's not her home so it's all very kind of confusing and I think Brexit made us so sad and that sounds fantastic and so we wanted to respond well, to us angry, sad and angry I think one of the main, one of the driving forces I mean we're always thinking about our position, other people's positions where people are at, assessing your life the direction, I mean it's a constant uh, <clears throat> process but it certainly unleashed a lot of anger. And I guess it's the, the, the barrage of news and opinion and the polarizing effect of it all. Of course, we couldn't be ambivalent about it. We had very strong opinion about it, like everyone else seemed to have. So it kind of did unleash uh, the most despicable attitudes about other fellow human beings. I mean, it was it's astonishing, still is astonishing, the amount of, um, you know, scum that rises to yeah, the top. Yeah. It's like, oh my God, this is endless. And as you say, it, it just keeps rolling on and it seems to be uh, changing, ever-changing colours into even worse uh, shades of whatever dark material that it's made of. So it's, yeah, it's still re- relevant. It's more pertinent, sadly, than it, than it was. We didn't, you know, one of those things that you, when you embark on something that might come out of anger, in a way, is a motivating force that is tapping into something that's happening in the contemporary culture right here, right now. You might not know where that's going to land in four years' time. I mean, so it's a bit of a dangerous thing to do. So we never used the word Brexit, but we talked about a changing political landscape giving rise to feelings in, in, the, imag- in the sense that this really isn't going to change anytime soon in the way that it hasn't really changed in America at all that much. I mean, I know Biden is in, but it's that forces, those forces are still lurking there and they absolutely are on the rise here. But I kind of hope that because the shit show keeps getting worse and worse, whether the, the, the colonic, we're near the end of the colonic irrigation. And if, you know, there's been a bit of a clean out, hopefully, not quite yet. And people are ready for a, a hard kind of look at themselves and say, actually, this took place and we allowed this to take place, and we, in fact, we voted for this to take place. That is kind of shocking, but I wonder if those people have the, the hum- humility to look at themselves. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, this is where I'm identified with the film. I mean, you know, I'm not Irish, but I'm half Spanish, and just what you were saying there about that sense of when I was a kid being someone of with the name that I've got, and... You know, I, I was never English in, in that scenario, but then going to Spain, I was the English one. So it's that sense of not having really a sort of sense of belonging that other people seem to, to have. And then 
you know, when this comes along, it, it, when, when Brexit sort of came along, it's that, that sense of, yeah, you really don't have any belonging, please. You know, and it's like searching for a, a, a passport, you know, going in trying to get a Spanish passport and I've got a girlfriend who's Romanian. And it is that that anger came up, re- you know, really strongly. And I, I sort of thoroughly identified with that. And I wondered actually just with the use of all the, again, we haven't talk, touched on this yet, but the, the one of the themes of the film is the focus on um, this uh, upper English class debutante called uh, Rose Dugdale, who then became radicalized, you know, and, and was very sort of activist um, for Irish republicanism. And I wondered whether that, I mean, apart from serving as a sort of historical link, you know, across some of the effects of, of the relationship between Irishness and Englishness, it was almost a way that you could kind of say, why are we not, why are we not all rioting in, in, in the streets a little bit more, you know? Yeah, but she, um, I, I think what's interesting about Rose Dugdale for us is this is a woman who um, faced up to the imperialist past of her own country and looked it squarely in the face and responded in her own way. I, I think the other thing about Brexit for me is it also um, revealed, it pulled back and revealed the lack of awareness and actual effing ignorance that people, British people have about their own history and their own colonial past, including you know, the history of their nearest neighbours, Ireland, and the impact of that relationship between the two countries over the centuries. So she is somebody who could have easily um, remained completely ignorant of it all her life and um, not bothered to um, have any awareness of it. But somehow she did the complete startling opposite. She also stepped up and said, I'm going to do something to address this terrible situation and I'm going to fight on the side of the people I think who are right, which are the, you know, the Irish fighting for a united Ireland. And um, so she's she's very interesting in that way, because the other part of um, the future towns for me is that going back to think about why we left Ireland in the 80s also is about an anger with our own country as well. So it's not just, I I guess we're hoping that it's, not that it's even-handed, but I hope that that comes across as well. I mean, it's a country that has had wave after wave of immigration for um, a long time and has let its own people down. I mean, when you leave a country because you feel you have no choice, um, we were lucky we could come here and um, you know it's that, that's an endless story for so many communities and at the moment we've got Ukrainian refugees um, on the move all across Europe the UK, Ireland we need places that we can go but there's also that like if you don't want to go but you find yourself going um, I mean we went for a very positive reason in the end because we went to university and it, it certainly changed the course of our life but it came out of a feeling that we couldn't stay in Ireland there was nothing there for us and we were part of a whole wave in the 80s of young people leaving I mean just to go back to the, the Rose Dugdale and the militancy I mean in a way I guess the hyperbole over the course of the last six years in particular um, has become much more violent 
the, the the language being used, the positions, the stances being used, and then I kind of look at uh, the militancy that was being used back in the 60s and 70s out of frustration. The civil rights movement in America, uh, the anti-Vietnam protests, the anti-internment protests here, and I guess people do that if you feel your back is up against the wall and you've no recourse to any other action. So you look at what's happening in Iran or look at other kind of countries that are taking place, think about Extinction Rebellion, the environment. I think people will become much more, much more militant than what they currently are. And so maybe some people feel blocking roads or gluing themselves is, is too much. Uh, I'm thinking that's, that's going to go much, much more extreme. And don't be surprised when it does, because if you don't start listening and working uh, towards solving those issues, people become more and more frustrated. And so people like Rose Dugdale think, well, you know, violence, <clears throat> you know, whether you agree with it or not, is now the only recourse that I have. The idea of a polite protest, it's like, that's just getting us absolutely nowhere. So that's when people begin to uh, get really, really hard in their positions. Because, of course, governments get hard all the time. And they have all those instruments of power, like the police and the army. And I do anticipate much more disquiet in the coming years, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think we are... For the first time, maybe since the 80s and Thatcher, we are stress testing British politeness. <laughs> you know what I mean? And that, that, like, oh no, it'll be okay, and shrug of the shoulders type of thing. Um, so, just one, one final question. Um, Thomas More's Utopia kind of runs through uh, the piece, and this idea of imagining a better life being the underpinning of immigrant identity. And Again, this is this may be considered a slight spoiler, so close your ears if you don't. But at the end of the film, the, there's more of a question than a statement around the idea of does hope exist? And I just wondered whether you know that that was the the, the tone that you were were going for. And are you still like like in a way like me, kind of saying I kind of hope hope exists, but I'm not sure, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, well, we. I'm glad that that's the tone that you think you're left with at the end of the film because that's what we absolutely want and that's what we're striving for. Um, yes, I mean, despite everything that we've just said, of course, I remain ultimately very hopeful in a hopeful in the in the future because I remain optimistic about people in general and. Um, yes, we're being very badly led at the moment. Yes, it feels like a shit show, but at the end of the day, people are courageous and optimistic, and there's more goodness than bad. And um, yeah, we we yeah we we all want something better, don't we? I mean, that's the feeling that we have. I mean, we couldn't come to a conclusion at the end of the future tense in our own personal life about what our next step might be or what the next chapter of our life might be. So we kind of failed to reach that conclusion, but we left ourselves poised in a place where we're, you know, still thinking and it's unfinished business and I wanted wanted to end in a place where there's a, a sense that, you know, not that everything would be okay, but there is, yeah, it is a, 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 ho- a more hopeful place. Yes. I mean, one, one of the practical things come out, our, our daughter was saying, don't, let's not move to Ireland. Because, you know, then if, because uh, I'm not going to move there, because, you know, so, but don't put a flight between, if I ever have a child, don't put a flight in between me and, 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 and you. And we said, 
you know, but what if we, instead of moving to Ireland, we were to move to the south of France or something? And she went, yeah, that wouldn't be too bad. So I'm thinking, oh, okay. Uh, so it's, it's, you just don't want to go to a cold, wet country. It's like, we just want to, which we don't want to go to a cold, wet country either. Christ. So in a way, we were never going to answer that question, should we move back to Ireland? Because, of course, we can't. It's full of indecision. So I guess in the meantime, it, it's just to have, not unlike you, kind of, you, you have shared identities across different kind of countries and that's kind of uh, the juggle that we have to continue to, to do well I love the movie Christine Joe, thanks very much for coming on the podcast Dario. thank you thank Dario you so, so much. much yeah a real pleasure thank, thank you, you. Well, thanks so much for uh, coming on The Cinematologist. I really appreciate it. So this is Andrew Pope. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your, your output? You know, you've got the, the, the website, and is it a, a podcast as well? No, it's just the site. Uh, I'm a, what you might call a hobby hobbyist blogger. Uh, the site is whitlockandpope.com, and there's a Twitter handle as well. And uh, it's, it's really just the stuff I'm into. So it's mostly cult and horror and that kind of thing. But when the festival season comes around, I get to do all my, uh, you know, art house and international stuff as well. Great. I mean, you're in the same boat as us in the, you know, there's no editorial, nobody telling you what to do. So it's kind of freeing. But in other points, it would be nice to write for, you know, other titles. Does that ever happen for you? Basically, guesting on other people's podcasts is my is when I pass the reins to other people. Yeah, but as far as the site's concerned, uh, there is no editorial control, and uh, I have a little bit of ADHD. So who who knows what I'm going to be writing about next? It's it's in the lap of the gods. Well, I think you know uh, the democracy of contemporary film criticism requires all of that for sure. So. How's uh, how's this year's festival been for you in general? Do you think it's it's been a kind of improvement on last year? Because a, a few of the critics I've talked to have said, you know, last year was a bit of a, a blowout. Really, what, what's your take on this year? Uh, I like last year and I like this year. Um, as ever, you never quite know what you're going to get. I always drop a little ranked list of what I'm looking forward to to make sure I prioritise the right things. And as ever. Uh, some of the stuff I was particularly looking forward to was good and some of it wasn't and some of the stuff that was just on the edges of my radar turned out to be amazing so we were introduced to each other the other day in the uh, Pitch Houses Central Bar by Mary mutual friend of course and it was great because we we had a conversation about Inaritu's Bardo let me get the title right Bardo False Chronicle of a Handful of Truths and you were one person, or one of the few people that I'd spoken to who didn't just automatically dismiss it out of hand as Inaritu, the ultimate narcissist going, you know, on steroids with this with this movie. So I don't know, what's your sort of overall take on, on this film? I found it to be a mixed bag. I can see why so many people have given it duff reviews. Uh, it is the work of a narcissist. Well, and let's, let's put it this way. And egomaniac or a particularly self-interested individual uh, basically taking the money available and absolutely having a bit of a wank with it <laughs> but that's but that's fine yeah. uh, it's very self-indulgent uh, and and long even at its cut down level I mean it was almost three hours when it first premiered is now got it down to just over two and a half uh, it's meandering 
it's all over the place uh, but I'm up for that so much of um, contemporary cinema that is on the festival circuit certainly is in a kind of uh, social realism social naturalism register and uh, there's only so many films that you can watch that are in that kind of Mia Hansen Love, Darden Brothers kind of um, area before you just want someone to go a bit nuts and really indulge themselves and, and put it all out there and a lot of it doesn't necessarily work and some of it does and I'm up for that, I'm up for that kind of ride Yeah, I, I, I kind of have to agree really, I mean what's funny about a film like this, it's very difficult to avoid the discourse around it, it's a little bit sort of reminded me of Blonde in that sense, where you've got a sort of big name director who's been given a lot of money and essentially again, you know, I don't know whether this is a, a criticism of the industry or a, a criticism of the artist where you know, that sense of editorial reigning in just doesn't seem to have happened at all. And somebody's allowed to go out and do what they want. And sometimes you have to think to, to yourself, as you say, that's that's great. Just if you've got $100 million and you want to make a film with, essentially that's about your own insecurities and your own sense of, uh, you know, almost unjustness at the way that your type of filmmaking is received by critics or audiences, particularly, I think that's kind of fine and go go off and do that but i mean i think the problem is when when a filmmaker like that portrays themselves as the as the victim and there's been some really weird comments you know about if you you know if this is the the reaction to the movie is somehow anti-mexican i mean i just i didn't really understand that at all um because the, the, there are some great things about the movies you're saying but there is you know like you say it's it's meandering it's too long it it is it does fall into the stereotypical critiques that 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 people have leveled at Inaritu and it's funny because in the film he actually tells us about them himself doesn't he absolutely and I you know I saw this at a gala screening at the festival rather than a press screening so we actually came out in front of the screening and you, you know that a movie is maybe having a little bit of trouble landing when the director gets up in front of it and tells you how to read the text, <laughs> which oh, is man. basically what he did. Uh, he, he got up and said, don't worry about all the stuff to do with the history of Mexico. Uh, if you know about that stuff, that's great, but you, you don't need to. Yeah. And also don't worry too much about the plot and making sense of the plot. Just allow the, the moments and the images and the ideas to wash over you and just go, go with the tide. That tells me that those are probably the two things that were stinging him a little. People yeah. complaining, oh, it's not about Mexican history, but it doesn't really explain it if you don't know. And, and the, the plot was jumbled and, and meandering and so on. And, and, you know, both of those criticisms are valid. Uh, I guess he just wanted to make sure that uh, people were primed for that up front. And if they could just look past that rather than obsessing on them, there was other stuff to enjoy. Yeah. And. And frankly, there was. This movie is, um, it, for for all its faults, its faults are its are also its strengths. It is a smorgasbord of thoughts on Mexican history, uh, race in Mexico, indigenous culture versus white culture, and identity, and how he himself identifies because the movie is about a very transparent standing character for the director himself who is uh, has a childhood nickname of um, 
I think I think Darkie. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so because because and there's a fear that he he isn't white or he has too much in indigenous blood in him or and and that's uh, that's frowned upon or he's treated as n not in a over overwhelmingly nasty way but in a kind of. Uh, jovial teasing sort of way people make reference to that uh, in his in his childhood nickname so there's all of that there's a lot of stuff which it definitely comes from a place of privilege uh, because he's talking about how he as a director needs to manage his his self-image and how he's perceived as a very rich successful Mexican artist but still wanting to be kind of a man of the people at the same time. Exactly. So it's all of those things. It's very much everything that's on his mind. And he is, he is a privileged individual. So it touches on a bunch of those concerns as well. It's all of that stuff, all mashed together, uh, and then treated through the lens of, of something like a, a Jodorowsky or, you know, Bunuel or, or maybe even Terry Gilliam, like that kind of... Um, Freewheeling. Yeah, it's blurred reality, dream sequences, fantasy smashed into reality, no connecting points between those elements as well. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's like a surreal cinema of, of the spectacle. Yeah. It's surrealism through the, the grand spectacle. Sure. And uh, at certain points, it's even a little bit Zack Schneider. <laughs> uh, because, you know, in its kind of doomy, grand, operatic, uh, Sturm und Drang type uh, uh, spectacle, you know, there's dead dead ancient Mexican gods t crashing down into the city, p huge piles of human corpses to climb up. I found that all very Jodorowsky. Yeah. And, uh, and, he, and he goes for it. Now, there's, there's a lot of movies in this festival which are a young mother on the edge of poverty struggling with the, uh, her home life and things of that nature. And that kind of movie can be can be enormously good can be an absolute masterpiece but what you'll never say looking at bardo is oh this is the fourth or fifth movie like this that i've seen in this festival yeah. it absolutely isn't it's the only one playing in this festival that is so expansive and uh surreal and has this enormous budget behind it and frankly there's stuff on the screen that you could only portray if you had an enormous wedge of cash behind it to in, to indulge your your fantasies and frankly if that if, if that amount of money was available to him then i'm glad that he took it and he made this kind of you know grand folly yeah and and where my problem with that lies and i agree with all of that and i think that there are certain sequences which are just wonderful to watch and even the sort of you know this his usual approach of you know, using the wide-angle lens all the way through, so you do get this sort of surrealist approach to space. It's not just in the, the, the chopping up of the structure. But then, you know, again, it's all... It's not one take, but it's special effected as if it w was all one take, so it's that Birdman kind of effect. If you like that, that's fine. If you don't, if you think that's self-indulgent, then you'll criticise it for that as well. But I think the, the issue for me is that sense... Where, where you say it's narcissistic or where one might say it's narcissistic or self-indulgent is that, you know, he's got, he, he's talking about themes that it almost as if he's invented them for the first time. You know, this idea of reckoning with imposter syndrome, the idea of the external recognition of the value of his own work, um, 
the problems of, of an artist focusing on their own career rather than their family, that kind of stuff, um, contradictions in national identity, the cultural exploitation of the poor, all these things are in there. And he's kind of like the, the artist at the centre, because again, it is, you know, whether he, he pretends that it isn't or not, it's semi-autobiographical. The artist is kind of reckoning with all of those things in ways that, in, that to me, you know, have been done many times before and been reckoned with many times before. But it comes across as if he's, because the, the, the style is so expansive and so, so, so much full of spectacle, it's almost as if he's saying, look, I'm, I'm, in, I'm doing something amazingly new here with all of this. But he, he kind of really isn't. It's just the money is on the screen making it look, you know, huge. Um, yeah, absolutely, and I do, I do get that. Um, there's, there's a long tradition of artists who are maybe in their mature years making a film about an artist who is uh, going to attend some particular ceremony where he will be lauded and thinking back over their career. So, you know, Wild Strawberries, Deconstructing Harry, etc., etc. There's a, there's a bunch of them, and he uses. I think that as a jumping off point to explore the various things rattling around in his head, like Wild Strawberries, like Deconstructing Harry and so on. And it does feel like that process has then kind of metastasized into just, just it like, like, and you know, I do have ADHD, so I get this. Every train of thought yeah. explodes off in every direction yeah. and just keeps going and he follows everyone as far as he can go and it's just a, a higgledy-piggledy jumbled load of thoughts that are ricocheting around his head and he tries he tries to systemize it and cram it all in yeah. but there's no until you get to towards the very very end there's no clear organizing principle no. uh, and ev even when it comes in and there's a kind of degree of quote-unquote explanation, such as it is, as to as to why the movie is like this. It's uh, it's pretty thin stuff, but nonetheless, even though it's very disorganized to my mind, even though none of these ideas are utterly fresh or enormously well developed, there's such a passion and excitement and energy to them that whenever the movie drops or seems to lose its way it will always come back around and give you something new just around the corner the visuals always strong and fresh uh, the energy is always there uh, and like I say there's you, you can't make a lot of films like this. The, the way it's made, the degree of spectacle, the degree of grand spectacle, requires a lot of money, requires someone who has enough cachet to get a film like this made with what was clearly not a whole bunch of editorial control. And when someone is in that position and gets handed that amount of money and just says, I just want to take everything that's inside my head and just Jackson Pollock it all over the screen... Um, that doesn't happen very often, and I think it's. Uh, I'm. I'm just glad this movie exists. For all for all its flaws, I'm glad this movie exists. Yeah. Um, so enjoy the rest of the festival. Thanks for coming on. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here.